You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. The four most dangerous words in the English language are this time it's different. In our sector, it's never different. And so there's very, very predictable corporate behavior and investment behavior. It's trying to have a layer of objectivity to understand where you are in that cycle and then invest accordingly. And so when you start to see, low, I would call it low risk m a that's normally the sign that you're at the beginning of a sustained movement in underlying commodity price. And, and obviously those equities tend to, to follow that movement of the underlying equity price. So seeing companies take out other producing companies and companies of size, that's normally the green shoots. And so I think that's a very, very positive signal. Hi guys, this is Brian Lenny of Mining Stock Education and JuniorStockReview.com. Today with me, I have Nicole Adshed-Bell of Kapal Advisory. Nicole, welcome to the show. I think it's best if we start off with an introduction to yourself and Kapal. Oh, well, there's nothing I like talking about than more than myself. So here we go. Uh, yes. Yeah, so geologist originally, you can probably tell from the accent, uh, came from Australia, been in Canada for approximately 22 years and then turned to the dark side. So uh, after finishing a PhD in Oz, worked in Canada for a junior, uh, learned what it's like working for a junior from in the trenches, so to speak, and uh, then moved to the buy side. So was working for a precious metals, uh, SEC registered precious metals fund that really had a very global view of precious metals and had the luxury of really being paid to go around the world and educate myself about precious metals company and kicking tires on assets because we did an exceptional amount of due diligence. And then I turned to the darker side. I started covering, went to the sell side at the beginning of the bull market in all commodities. So when copper went from 90 cents to its last run up from 2005 to 2007, Covered uranium as well from when nobody could spell it to when it went to plus $120. And so that was this incredible experience of a two-year bull market, a crazy bull market. And uh, then moved to the darker side again, became an investment banker for four years and really focused on M&A uh, leading up and through the GFC. So it was a very interesting thing to go through, talking about political risk risk and, and global financial risk and um, advised uh, Sherwood when they merged with Capstone, Lundin when they took over Arena CS. They did some pretty big M&A transactions, went back to the buy side, to the fake love on the buy side, and uh, and then left that and have my own company that I focus really mostly on investing in the resources space. Uh, I only invest, I follow Warren Buffett's rules, I invest in what I know for for positives and for negatives and uh, and then do some advisory work, I suppose, on the side. It, it's, it's if companies come to me, whether it's a debt fund that wants some help managing their due diligence process because I'm technical with a financial overlay, uh, I suppose a, a, a diverse set of experiences, uh, jack of all trades, master of none. And uh, but really heavily focused on on being an active investor and trying to take I, I suppose these these learnings from uh, getting paid to be an investor, from being an investment banker, from being a sell side analyst, and plus 25, 26 years in, in this industry, trying to put them to work. Over the last year, we've seen a number of deals in the sector. Uh, you know, BHP acquired Oz Minerals, uh, Rio Tinto, and Turquoise Hill. Just lately, we had the proposed deal from Glencore to take over tech. Um, these are mega deals at the senior level uh, of the resource sector. You know, as a resource sector investor, what does this tell you about where we are in the market? There's something that I always try and look at because where you are in the cycle really dictates the underlying performance of the equities. As we know, 
the equities tend to move to beta. It's very hard to predict and understand the potential for alpha, so those events that are outside the movement to the commodity price. And there's a great, I advise everybody look at it. I talk about it, some stuff on YouTube, but Lion Mining Select have this mining clock. And I've taken that concept and adapted it for myself. And what it does is it gives you a, a discipline in trying to understand where you are in the cycle. Because we behave, uh, the foremost dangerous words in the English language are this time it's different. In our sector, it's never different. And so there's very, very predictable corporate behavior and investment behavior. It's trying to have a layer of objectivity to understand where you are in that cycle and then invest accordingly. And so when you start to see, low, I would call it low-risk M&A, that's normally the sign that you're at the beginning of a sustained movement in the underlying commodity price and, and obviously those equities tend to, to follow that movement of the underlying equity price. So seeing companies take out other producing companies and companies of size, that's normally the green shoots. And so I think that's a very, very positive signal. Um, I mean, personally, I've drunk the Kool-Aid on copper. I'm <laughs> pretty big copper bull. And so what we're seeing, we've seen a number of sizable transactions. On, we've seen BHP with Oz, obviously Glenn Core are trying to take out deck. We'll see how that goes. And I think fascinatingly, we've seen HUD Bay with its uh, Copper Mountain announcement of that transaction. Now, Copper Mountain, it's a producer, so theoretically lower risk than a developer, but it is a very high cost producer. And it's, it tends to be a swing, has incredible beta and leverage to move in an underlying commodity price. And so for HUD Bay, I would say it's on the high risk side of M&A transactions. And to me, again, it's a very, very positive sign. That means that they are taking a view, a constructive view on copper. And that view is that the copper price is uh, at the very least maintaining these levels, but if not going higher. So I think that we're seeing a lot of green shoots. Obviously, Lundin's doing some consolidation efforts in Chile that are part of a strategic uh, consolidation of projects. Uh, we haven't yet seen the frenzy of M&A in the development space. Normally, when you see higher risk M&A start, uh, that's a, that's more at the top, I think, at the, at the top of the cycle or more of the waning stages of, of a cycle. So I would say that we're at the beginnings for me personally. Uh, I think copper's I've said it publicly, I said it last year, I think copper's going to $6 to $8. So I, I want to be exposed to that. Oh, absolutely. Um, recession fears, banking crisis, you know, the threat of world war. There's a number of reasons to be fearful in the market or sources of risk. In your view, do these risks affect the M&A market? Um, do we see that, you know, change anything moving forward? Well, it hasn't really. Um we are seeing big transactions occur. And so to some degree, uh, when an initial event happens, I think there's a an overt emotional reaction and then it stabilizes. And obviously when Russia invaded Ukraine, it was on the news constantly. There was a lot of talk and rhetoric about it and it's just faded into the background. Having said that, if there's a nuclear event, I think we'll be more worried about uh, food scarcity and possibly uh, having some gun, things like that, than commodity prices. So, look, that's an ex exogenous event, and I don't think any of us can predict. I think that what Russia invading Ukraine has shown, and and really in a horrific life because there's been many, but way because there's been many, many people impacted, is how uh, how 
exposed we are to security of supply and resources and whether that's metals or food production obviously ukraine is one of the it's really the bread basket of of europe and the middle east in terms of the grain production that comes out of there i think it really hit home to people that commodities matter and in our universe we're very guilty in the mining industry we talk to each other we get confirmation bias from each other but it really matters what the general investor thinks and what the general community thinks and mining is not well understood, and I think that's largely a fault of our sector. We're not very good at messaging it well. Uh, And it's also in some ways loathed because people don't really know where their stuff comes from. And so I think what that event has made people wake up and take notice and go, okay, metals matter, security of supply matters. We need to be thinking of these these commodities and the engine of our society and the engine of growth, but they don't get valued that way or treated that way by investors. And, And I think what we would like to see is is that change, the attitude change, a realization that um, without material investment uh, in our set in many commodities, without material a sustained price rise in in those underlying commodities to incentivize that investment, the world doesn't look like a very good place in the next five to ten years. Right. Well, if if you were to rank, you know, all those uh, inputs that that lead to uh, to an acquisition or a merger, where does jurisdiction rank? Because you know, more and more, these things seem to be centered in different parts of the world, and a lot of these deals, you know, especially in the short term, have been maybe North American focused or what I would say is maybe safer jurisdictions. So, where do you think it ranks? I uh, jurisdiction will always come into it. I think sometimes there's a misunderstanding of jurisdictional risk. Uh, the US is one of the hardest places in the world to get permitted. It's very, very location dependent. And you had the US government on the one hand come out and say, we support the development of critical minerals, yet uh, make a, and I think it was probably pretty unforeseen, but with twin metals come out and change uh, federal land status to preclude the development of Antifagasta's twin metals. And then their actions that they took with Pebble. And so, uh, I think as 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 a company looks outwards, we have this bias, maybe an Anglophone bias to North America and Australia, and we think it's lower risk, but it isn't. Uh, there's a lot of environmental permitting risk. Australia, for instance, is very challenged by security of supply and water. Uh, power is high cost. Power is 55% in Australia, for example, coal-fired. A lot of people don't realise that. And so I think it's very, very jurisdiction-specific, and I think the, the, the smart companies – uh, what they want to see is security of ownership and then go and uh, and what they don't want to see is governments changing the goalposts. But every country is guilty of changing the goalposts. I mean, we've seen it in first world countries. We've seen it in developing countries. We've seen it around the world. So there is no jurisdiction without risk. That was perhaps a long-winded way of saying that. <laughs> I completely agree. Um, James Grant famously says, you know, risk is most threatening when it's least obvious and least threatening when it's most obvious. Um, in your view, where do we stand on the spectrum of risk right now? Um, is it obvious and therefore least threatening? Uh, I, I think everyone's aware of the big risks. Obviously, you've got global conflicts. And I'm not sure that's ever going to go away. Humanity doesn't seem to learn the lessons <laughs> of the past. I'm not sure what that says about us. <laughs> uh, we've got we've got this overlaying the financial risk with what's going on in the States and with some of the issues around banking. I actually think that's positive for commodities because hard assets, where do you put your money? I, I think if the average person un- really understood what a fiat currency is, what that actually means in terms of uh, the lack of security, what happens if you have a million dollars in a bank and that bank ceases to exist and your government maybe backstops for a maximum of 200000 that, that That's gone. 
And so how do you protect wealth uh, in this environment of money printing, of massive inflation, et cetera, et cetera? Hard assets is a way to do that. So I think there's this global uncertainty, the monetary uncertainty. I think we're in this unique time where commodity prices have to rise to incentivize new production. We are not seeing high-risk capital go into our sector, which is the build capital. Uh, the only way that changes is if the commodity prices change, and we saw that with lithium. I mean, you had this massive run-up in lithium price, and obviously if you have lithium in your name, you're probably up plus 100% no matter what your asset base is. So there's a lot of ambulance chasing going on around there, but it, it did what it was supposed to do. That massive increase in lithium prices incentivized material new production coming online, and I would argue that you need to see that in copper and you need to see that in, in, in some of these other commodities. And so we will never live in a world without risk. We are very integrated. Uh, I think we're seeing maybe not resource nationalism, but awareness at a government level uh, that that security of resources matter. Uh, but I think them being aware of that and that resulting in true change in terms of being able to bring on supply more quickly, I think those are two very different things. Definitely. Um, you know, a lot of these are external risks, uh, whether it's the banking crisis or war. You know, these are a lot of things that investors can't control. No. Um, for all intents and purposes, you know, does it make more sense then for the, the average investor out there to look at what they can do, the stuff they can control themselves. Um, and if they can, where do you think the investor should look? I think you can control, obviously, buying, selling. I think that we're all very, very guilty of buying and not selling. <laughs> uh, so I think being aware of when you make a purchase for you, what that exit is and understand what the triggers for that. And educating yourself, you're in control of educating yourself and, and monitoring your investments. And I have been as guilty as this as probably the average person. And uh, I held a stock many years ago that went all the way to zero, went bankrupt. And that was because I wasn't watching it. And you know, I'm a supposed knowledgeable person about this sector. And so tracking and monitoring and trying to be objective, and I think one of the unique things about mining is, particularly on the junior side, management teams are very accessible. So you can ring up a CEO and have a chat or speak to their VPIR or uh, see their presentations uh, such as what you do or with other forums or on YouTube. So there's this incredible plethora of information out there perhaps maybe too much. And so I think the challenge that one has is how do you distill when there's literally plus 2,000 juniors that are investable around the world, for example, publicly listed entities, how do you distill and how do you try and uh, focus on those that give you the potential for more upside than downside? I think that's the challenge. Right. And it, it, would you, you know, it's often spoken of as noise and signal. Is, is that what you're trying to convey? Yeah, look, it's always going to be noisy. Uh, I would say that most of the, this is a very technical business with a technical language and most investors aren't technical. And so you sometimes maybe there's a, dis and, and as a technical person, and you'll get this feedback from more people who are technical, sometimes we get frustrated because we look at an asset and go, it's never going to work. It's a very, very bad asset, but it has the right people, the right promotion. The stock can do very, very well. And so I think being aware that a good project can be very different from a good uh, share price performer. And again, it's about an exit, um, being exposed to those companies that are wonderful on the promotion side. You can make a lot of money. 
but you have to get out. And you've got to be aware that a lot of the insiders doing that promotion are probably there at a cheaper price than you and have a better understanding of when their exit point is. And so I think that um, taking a view on a commodity, obviously, if you think copper's going up, you don't have to be that smart You uh, or uh, particular about what you invest in. Everything that's exposed to copper will move upwards. We saw that with lithium. We've seen that with uranium. We've seen that with gold. So uh, I think the hardest thing is, 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 is being exposed to those companies or trying to determine those companies that their share price will move above and beyond what's happening with the underlying commodity. I mean, if the commodity got price, if gold price goes down, most gold companies are going down unless they've got spectacular drilling success. So it's and, – and being aware of those companies with those alpha events – that's much more challenge, but sometimes there's opportunities. So, for example, Reunion, when they first had success on their project in Guyana, the share price didn't really move. It was like the market didn't realise it. So you had this three-month window where you could accumulate a position and then everybody became aware of it. And so it's kind of... Uh, maybe being aware of those people out there that are investing in things not because they're getting paid to talk about it but are putting their own money in and uh, that you are confident of taking a reasoned view and understand what they're doing and, again, just feeding into your own uh, information base and understanding where everybody's incentives are. So if someone's talking about something they, you know, in a positive way, they probably own it or they might be getting paid to promote it. So just understanding incentives, I think, helps de-risk how you invest as well. For you, when you're deploying money into the market, do you start by looking at a metal and, and forming a thesis of where you think that metal price is going to go or – Yes. Yeah. I look, I am a long-term gold bull. <laughs> uh, I think everybody is to some degree who's, who's in mining and I've spent a lot of time working for a precious metals fund. And so I understand that universe, I think, quite well um, and have met with hundreds of management teams over the years and kicked the tires and lots and lots of assets. So I have a, I think, a well-rounded uh, information base that I can draw from when I make those investments. I would say the one thing I did learn about working for a fund for, for many years back to our point about selling was you have to sell. And so maybe the best example was that when I resigned from uh, the fund in mid-2015, I mean, that was the the nadir of the bear market. I mean, everybody was, gold's never going to go up. We hate the sector that we're selling with, uh, irrationally selling. And for me, I took, I didn't predict 2016. Nobody did, in my opinion. But the sentiment was so negative that you knew that at some point in the next two years, that sentiment would change. And all I had to do was be exposed. And so that thesis, uh, I went, I think gold's going to go up in the next two years. I want to be exposed to companies that have got leverage beta, so big ounces in the ground, but a balance sheet to survive the next two to three years. So they're not going to come to the market. And I invested in a bunch of those companies. They did exceptionally well. And then I was out of them by mid-2016 because I went parabolic. And so I had a thesis and then I tried to have discipline to maintain to that thesis. And I suppose I've been – and then now with gold, I pick and choose. So I pick stocks that I go, okay, I like what the management team is doing. I'm taking a positive view on gold. Uh, I tend to not invest in very, very early stage exploration companies, maybe because I'm a geologist, I'm too aware of the risk. So I like there to be some information that indicates that there's that there's something there uh, or that there's the potential for something to be there. I suppose the two key commodities that I'm focused on right now would be gold and copper. 
Okay. So if, if you're going to take the view that you, you like a certain metal and you're bullish on that thesis, and like you said, you know, negative sentiment gets to the point where you're thinking, oh, you know what, in the next two to three years, this price has to go up. So is the key, if you're going to bet on the metal price, is the key to have a longer term outlook to be right? Yeah, look, you, if, if you're worried about risk or a 10% downdraft in your position, you shouldn't be investing in this sector. Uh, because you'll probably have a heart attack in the next two or three years. <laughs> it, is a, it is a very, very high-risk sector, so I think you have to be comfortable with that. Uh, you have to be comfortable, and sometimes if something moves down 10%, 20%, that could be a, a wonderful buying opportunity, but it's it's also stepping back. Sometimes it's also being honest with yourself and going, okay, I bought company X and I bought it for this reason, and I think it's very good to write down the reasons because we're very guilty of retro-rationalising in our sector. And so if you bought it for X, Y, Z and it doesn't do X, Y, Z um, and then you go, okay, my investment thesis hasn't worked out, I don't see any room for upside, even if I'm down 20%, I will sell. So I also take money off the table when it's a losing proposition because it's better to be down 20% than it is to be down 80%. And I've learned that lesson the hard way. And so I think it's your stocks are individual. You have to be, you have to understand why you're buying something and then why you sell it. And sometimes share prices will move for things completely unrelated as to why you bought it. And that's a gift. I mean, that's, and so you've got to also go, well, I'm actually not the smartest person in the room. <laughs> Something exogenous happens uh, and, and, and take advantage of that. And so I think it's, it's being somewhat selective. You know, don't own a hundred names as an individual. There's no way you can keep track of them and be okay selling, be okay getting out and, and, and coming back in. And obviously that might depend on your jurisdiction. If you're in the States, there's tax consequences to that, less so in Canada. Right. Uh, in my view, equity valuations haven't kept up with metal prices. You know, arguably the best example is gold today. You know, the metal price is over $2,000 an ounce. Yeah, most of the equities continue to kind of move sideways. Uh, in your view, what's keeping investors out of the stock market? I don't think anybody believes that this is sustainable. It's the only legitimate response. But therein lies the opportunity. Uh, gold tends to do well in in uh, look, causation correlation with gold. Everybody thinks they understand why gold price moves. I don't actually think anybody, <laughs> any of us do. <laughs> uh, I think in times of uncertainty and risk, it's it's a good platform for gold. I think uh, as people better understand uh, fixed asset risk versus paper money risk, uh, I think that really what the gold industry should be doing is making gold attractive to younger people. Uh, and we've done a very, very poor job of doing that. Back to the messaging of our sector, we, we and it's great, while you're doing this is we need uh, younger people messaging to a younger audience. And if you go to the average conference that's aimed at retail investors, there's not that many 20, 30-year-olds in the room. Uh, there's there's an awful lot of gray hair. And so uh, I think I think gold right now, I think it's really, it's an interesting, uh, it's, we've got a great price. I mean, who would think that would be kind of complaining about, oh, $2,000 gold? But that means you have time. You have time to sit back and go, if I'm taking a positive view on gold, what do I want to be exposed to? And uh, the longer this gold price remains at this level or starts to tick up, the more comfortable people, investors will get. And I think what you tend to see in, in all sectors, not just ours, it's like everybody wakes up one day and goes, I have to own this. And there's a massive rush. And so we're very, very guilty of being shift-like. It's, it's very hard to stand out from the crowd, either as a retail investor or an institutional investor or as a corporate. 
so, but there's an awful lot of not great gold projects out there. So you kind of need to be aware of, uh, I think there'll be M&A uh, at this point in time across all commodities given with ETFs and institutional investors and their size growth is there's an argument to do an M&A now to just for the sake of getting bigger because there's more liquidity, you're able to attract a, a greater number of investors. And so, again, what you tend to see is, is and the same thing will happen in gold, and we've been seeing this to some degree, is you'll see gold companies, and we've seen a lot of this over the last four to five years, of uh, gold companies acquiring other producers. And we see themes in M&A. So for a while there, every single Australian company seemed to want an asset or a company in North America. Yeah, I think what happens is one company does something and boards and management teams of another company go, well, they did that, so we should do that too. So, there, again, there's a lot of groupthink that goes on at the corporate level and if you understand and appreciate that as an investor, you can make money out of that. Um, they're very, very – if I was a large diversified copper company right now, I'd be acquiring every single develop, development asset out there. I'd be going and offering 100% premium. Uh, it, it, if you're offering above present transaction premium, boards ha- and management teams have to take it to their shareholders. Um, you could wrap up the development copper space for, I don't know, two and a half billion probably. And that's future. That is your future supply. And they won't do that. They'll do that after everything's run up three, four, five, six times. So, I mean, sometimes I, I, I struggle to understand the mindset of management teams, it's crazy. You have this, you know, you know, there's a structural looming shortfall. Everybody agrees on that. It's the weirdest thing. Everybody agrees that copper production starts to decline material from 2025. And copper is the baseline industrial metal. If you love lithium, you should really, really love copper. And there's no, unlike lithium, there's an awful lot of lithium in the world. There was a lot of known deposits. You could bring it on quickly. That's not the case with copper. So, it's weird to me that we're all aware of this looming supply side issue, but people aren't acting yet. But they're in that's also a fantastic opportunity. In terms of copper, you know, we have this, or I don't even know if you want to call it a recession. I, I don't know what they consider the market these days in the States or, or Canada or wherever. Um, but could a recession be a negative to the copper bull or a delay to the copper bull? Yeah, of course. And I think people are very short-term focused. I mean, the dichotomy of the mining industry and the investing industry is a mining company has to manage its business for plus 10 years uh, and investors, if you're lucky, have a quarterly time horizon. So how do you do that when your asset base is constantly depleting? Just to maintain your production profile, you have to be growing. Uh, so I think that 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 is is a challenge i think that recessions these are recessions are generally not multi-year in nature it's a short-term hit it doesn't change the fundamental dynamics of what's going to happen with supply in the next three to four years and you cannot bring bring on a new mine in three to four years even if you a sizable copper mine if you had fully permitted today construction funding in place um water because obviously that's always the key thematic uh, you're looking, maybe you could have first production coming online in 2025. So we're kind of focused on all the downsides to copper and not focused, well, there's an upside thesis too. And you, you'll never pick the bottom or the top. None of us ever will. Anybody who says they are is basically lying. It's okay, I'm taking a positive viewpoint and I'm okay with a downdraft. I'm okay with 10, 20% down because when it talks, it will talk harder and faster probably than any of us predict. 
and everybody will decide they'll wake up. What happens? Everybody will decide they'll, they'll wake up one day and decide they want to own copper. Right. So what do you think is the biggest risk to the copper bull thesis? Uh, uh, I struggle to come up with one other than nuclear event. <laughs> <laughs> and believe me, I'm not advocating for that. Uh, <laughs> I, I just don't see anything changing on the supply side. And this is a supply side equation. And mining isn't exposed to the normal laws of supply and demand. There's an inelastic response to price pressure. And again, we're seeing it. We're seeing this schizophrenic behavior of governments, the US case in point, on the one hand saying we want to see new critical mineral supply, and then on the other hand, stopping it. So uh, I don't see. But that plays across multiple commodities. That's not just copper. And gold's a little bit more of a tougher one because on the ESG thematic, I would argue we spend way too much time unhealthily and a huge amount of money is wasted on ESG. But nonetheless, uh, it's something that has to be discussed and, and, and talked about and there's obviously ESG funds. Uh, with almost almost all commodities, there's an ESG thematic that you can wrap around that. That's a little bit tougher with gold. Uh you can talk about the social side and, and the governance side, et cetera, but obviously the the industrial utility of gold is uh, we don't need as much gold as we've been mining, but it's there for other purposes. Right, right, which I think are very important. And, you know, it's so often the general public doesn't seem to, to get it, uh, but unfortunately I think they will in the coming years, which, you know, we'll, see how, we'll see how that goes. Um, so you talked about in 2015, you know, the sentiment in the gold market being terrible and, you know, you, you, you had the, the, the foresight to see, you know what, this market has to change, um, because, you know, values have gotten so low and, you know, the outlook of what's going on in the world, you know, you, you see a bullish future for gold in that sense, would you consider yourself a value investor? Are you looking for situations where sentiment is terrible, valuations are low, and then that's where you're looking to deploy capital? I would say I'm naturally a deep value investor, but the problem is being a deep value investor, you need a management team that's capable of extracting value from the asset base. And so the value traps, uh, I think we've all fallen for them, but to some degree there's a real opportunity there as well is, and I've talked to some of my peers about that, is uh, it requires effort, but some of these deep value, and there's some incredibly deep valued stories out there but they're never going to that value will never be realized unless the management team and board changes. It's it's so in some ways, I mean that's very interesting from an MA thematic. Uh, but it's also as an investor, if a number of in some of these smaller companies you could do that, right? If a number of investors went, okay, we're gonna take, we think there's deeply embedded value in this project, it's a high quality project, the management team are unable to execute, they're unable to promote, they're unable to tell the story, whatever the reason is, uh, but we're going to come in and fix that. So deep value, you, if you're investing in a deep value story, you have to have a good understanding that there's an exogenous event that's going to extract that value. And to me, that's the difficult, that's a difficult one because it can be very frustrating. You go, it's so cheap. Why doesn't anybody else realise? Uh, but sometimes that can be a Rick rule talking about it or an influencer in our sector that people follow and listen to and go, yeah, I agree with you. And sometimes you can have a management team that's very technically good. They've got a great project. They're just not very good at telling the story. Um, that's, that's, that's kind of a, that's a great thing to be involved in as long as they become better at being able to tell the story or someone tells the story better than they do for them. Right. Right. Absolutely. 
Um, you know, personally, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned the hard way is the importance of selling. And you've touched on this uh, a, a number of different times. <laughs> um, but I, I'd like to rehash that. And so in your view, is the sell price Im- as important as the buy price? And more important. Okay. Uh, <laughs> in my opinion, uh, you... Uh, you hear so many stories in the last bull market in all commodities, how people were worth millions and millions of dollars on paper and they wrote it the whole way down. I mean, their portfolio was down 90, 95, 99%. You don't want to ever be in that position. And so, again, to have that discipline of taking money off the table, uh, if, if you've got a stock that's moved up 200% in a couple of weeks, don't be greedy. <laughs> and some of us, you, know, you can be exposed to that. And so uh, the the example I reference, you know, those stocks on a, as a basket have moved up three hundred percent in under six months. I mean, that was a gift. It 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 didn't make any sense. It moved too hard and too fast. And so I I exited. So you, um, I think you always every time you buy something, you need to be thinking about what's the trigger for you to sell. And some companies on the subject of copper, uh, some companies uh, you know, that, that might have other things, they might have a wonderful dividend. So you get the exposure to the underlying commodity price, but then you get a great dividend and that might change change your reaction to it. But in the junior sector, generally, they're not producing, obviously, uh, there's a lot of risk. Uh, you always need to be thinking about selling 100%. Um, I read a great quote from Travis Walton. He's the author of Fire in the Sky, and it's regarding human behavior. He said, I've come to realize that the biggest problem anywhere in the world is that people's perceptions of reality are compulsively filtered through a screening mesh of what they want uh, and do not want to be true. In regards to the investing world, uh, would you agree with Walton's observation? Uh, 100%. Confirmation bias. We, We, as humans, we are deeply irrational. We're highly emotional. Uh, we're not objective about our own behavior or I think the world in general. And so trying to step back and instill a layer of objectivity, it's a very, very healthy thing to do, but it's very, very difficult. And so what you see, and you see it with really smart uh, people, you see it with world-renowned investors, okay, they say, oh, I might like copper. And then they send you every single positive article on copper and never send, send you the counter argument. So and in this world we live in and with the algorithms on whatever media that you're using to access information on the internet, you tend to get fed stuff that you want to hear as well. And so, you know, it's very dangerous. And, and we're seeing that playing out in this division of political ideologies that's happening, particularly in the West, but it also plays into our sector. So being willing to to, to hear the counter argument uh, and really go, okay, if I'm taking a, a long position on copper, you know, what are the things that can, can curtail that? And, and having that debate, if not with yourself, with someone else who might have a different view, I think it's a very, very healthy thing to do. And it helps de-risk, it helps de-risk the investment process. Absolutely. So, so from a personal perspective, how, how do you do that? Like, are you are you specifically seeking out that opposing view? Um, do you do you like when you're looking at a company or a, or the copper market or whatever? Are you specifically going out into the the on the internet or within your network of uh, friends and and associates and saying, hey, like, what is the what is the the antithesis or the anti bullish thesis to copper or to any company you're looking at? Yes. Uh, I mean, copper is a little bit tough because it, it is difficult to find anybody at this point in time, that, <laughs> which is also <laughs> scary. When everybody's agreeing with you, you actually have to 
but we haven't seen that expressed in in equity prices or the copper price. So even though everybody's agreeing, they're not acting. Um, look, I, I'll speak to my network, uh, you know, to people who technical people or someone who I, I might know that has visited a project, and I've got a particular view. I want to hear their view. Uh, I try it, again. It, it it comes back to I think educating yourself and also. You, you see this with management teams and boards is often everybody's focused on the upside and not what is our downside risk. And coming from the buy side uh, and, and working for the, the fund that I did, there was a huge amount of intellectual rigor uh, into the investment decision-making process, very detailed financial models, tire kicking. So there's lots of robust discussion about, about taking a position in the name. And so you are constantly forced to defend your thesis. And so I think that discipline has helped to some degree because I have that internal dialogue with myself when I'm investing in something. Uh, and again, I am always thinking, so for example, uh, you know, some companies, what we tend to see as a, as a pattern of behaviour is it's a drill play and everybody gets enormously excited and the share price moves up and the unknown is infinite. And then they come out with a resource estimate and it generally disappoints and the share price falls off. So that pattern that happens more often than not. So, for example, I will probably generally sell before that because I think it's very hard to exceed people's expectations when they think the upside is infinite. So I think what I try and do, I think that there's relatively predictable patterns of behaviour that occur in our sector and try to manage my investing around those as, those as well. Um, you're a non-executive chairman of Hot Chili and an independent director of Bravo Mining. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about each company and why you've decided to be a part of their team? Sure. So Bravo Mining is the first company that I've been involved in helping, I suppose, build. So I was, I was a founding director and I was approached to become a director of that company by the chairman and CEO because Luis Azevedo, I knew him from a previous life, Brazilian national. He'd gotten a hold of a, an amazing asset from Vale. Vale is going through this divestiture process. Uh, look, everybody says they have a tier one asset. Nobody does. Well, very few people do. They're an end member asset. But it's definitely got the very strong probability of becoming one. And so as a PGM asset plus nickel in the Carajas of Brazil, and so a country I'm familiar with, uh, commodity that I probably complex that I'm less familiar with than, say, copper and gold and zinc and uranium, but I've taken a particular viewpoint on PGMs. Uh, but for me, when I look at investing in something, number one, people. It's the most important agreement, uh, ingredient. People will say project. I don't agree. I think you can have a mediocre management team destroy value in a good project in a, and then a great management team extract enormous value out of a mediocre project. So for me, it had the right people to be successful in Brazil. You need to have uh, Brazilians who understand how to work in the country at all levels of the company. And often when there's failures in a country, people blame the country and not their management of their business in that country. So it ticked that box. It ticked the asset box. It's an unbelievable location. I've never seen anything like it. It's you leave Rio, you're on site by 1 p.m. It's in the Amazon of Brazil, but it was deforested 40 years ago, so you're not cutting down Amazon trees. There's no indigenous population proximal to the project. There's no people living on the project. There's a very skilled labor force, an hour and a half drive away. So all of these soft issues that become vitally important as you become, as you go through the development cycle, it was very de-risk from those. And so uh, so when Luis asked if I wanted to become involved in it, I went, Yes. And so I suppose what I brought to the table uh, was an understanding of, of 
the capital markets complex and some very good relationships with institutional investors. And so we really managed a lot of, uh, we're very strategic in the way that we manage the going public process. So we positioned uh, you know, key people in the private rounds, um, got some very good institutional investors. When we went public last year, it was in a very, very difficult time. It was mid-July last year. Uh, I don't think anybody thought we'd get the financing done, but we did. And, and so BlackRocker, 9.9% investors, Tembo, uh, around 9.5% and Franklin and RCF uh, within the opportunities fund are very sizable investors. And so we have, I suppose, that tick of credibility with globally renowned resource investors uh, taking a position in the company in very material position. And to me, it's it's somewhat almost the perfect story because there's a existing historic resource estimate there that's substantial in size and Valet discovered it and patent drilled it. That's all they did. And then it went into hiatus for 20 years. And so really our job has been a little bit like hitting fish in a barrel. So infield drilling, so 25,000 and a half metres, 25 and a half thousand metres of phase one drilling, which is infill, which is confirmed the drilling done by Valet. And very excitingly, and everybody's enthused about this, we intersected massive sulfides. And so nobody thought that there was potential for massive sulfides in the deposit. Well, our president thought that, but Valet certainly didn't. And so it opens up this uh, geological uh, geological possibilities. Well, is there a massive sulfide nickel plus minus copper deposit there as well? And so people are excited by that. So it's in that excitement drilling phase. Uh, resource estimate will be out later this year. And to back to that risk around resource estimates, what we want to demonstrate as that resource estimate comes out is that we've got a huge amount of potential for growth. So we've only infilled to 150 metres, which was Valet's drilling depth. We know the deposit continues. Uh, there are dr two drill holes down to 300 metres uh, that end in mineralisation. And so our job is to basically show how big this thing can be. So it's been a great success story. We IPO'd $1.75 and it's trading at around $3.30, $3.35. Lots of support, very, very tightly held uh, by management and board and our large institutional investors. And we're trying to demonstrate to the market that we've got capital allocation discipline, uh, that we're going to do things the right way. And uh, this is something I talk about quite a lot. Trust is the rarest commodity in our business. And I think management teams that can engender trust with their investing base, you, you, you tend to get a trust premium because very few companies can do that well. And so it's been a great and exciting adventure to date. And uh, uh, is, if the geology gods are uh, looking down upon us fondly, that, that will continue. And then Hot Chili, which will be actually, we've just announced that we'll be changing the name because the, the name on the subject of uh, political correctness, it's caused some, it's caused some debate. Uh, the Chileans love it, but uh, not necessarily everybody else does. So Hot Chili, which is going to become Costa Copper, it is a bit of a different story. It's been around for quite a long time, plus 10 years. But what attracted me to it again, it's got some interesting similarities to Bravo. Number one, copper. Uh, obviously, I'm very favorably disposed towards copper. It has a management team. Their asset is in Chile, in coastal low elevation Chile. And again, it has a management team that has the ingredients that uh, Bravo has. So Chilean expertise, a real commitment to the country and their asset base. Uh, the management team went through the downturn of the last cycle and managed to come out of the other side of that uh, with a better project, uh, 
having de-risked it. And I think it takes enormous amount of grit to survive through the bad times and then come out the other side. And they've also serially de-risked the project. So, again, I think this is unusual in our sector for a junior team to take a a multi-year view on how to de-risk elements of their project. So, They spent seven years obtaining a seawater extraction license. So the biggest risk in Chile is water. Uh, It is a very, it's a sogdinous risk. If you don't have it, you don't have a project. Their mineralization is amenable to water, in fact, seawater. In fact, it has higher recoveries with seawater. So they have a, a water extraction license. They have a very large resource base. It's got the potential to be a 100,000 ton per year producer. It is in low elevation Chile. It's very accessible. Uh, there's power all over the place. It can be theoretically fully fully powered by renewables because Chile has uh, de-risked its power situation enormously. It's got the water. It's got very, very good social relations, uh, Chileans on the board and in the management team. So all of those things, it's got a lot of parallels to Bravo, attracted me to that. And on the subject of value, it's deeply undervalued. And there's a reason for that. Its main board listing is in Australia. Uh, and Australia, Australians can be somewhat parochial in their investment process. They love it if it's in Australia or certain other countries, but if it isn't, maybe they're less keen. And they, they're not necessarily attracted to the bigger projects, the bulks that have a higher capex price tag associated with it. So it's natural exchanges in North America. So the market cap on a good day is 140 million. Its peers are all trading between 400, 500 million. And so there was this automatic re-rate that should occur just by it got a secondary listing in in Canada on the TSXV before I joined the board. Uh, and for me, the fix for this is is it's promotion. It's it's making the market aware of the fantastic job this management team has done in executing and delivering uh, of advancing these projects. Uh, they tracked to Glencore and there's been mixed reactions to, to Glencore's investment, but uh, Glencore, a substantial investor in the company, hovering around 9.3%. They have anti-dilution rights. They have offtake rights, but those offtake rights uh, are only, they only have, have the offtake for 60% of the production, a benchmark pricing, and only for the first eight years of the life of mine. Uh, if they go below 7.5%, they lose those offtake rights. And so uh, maybe the typical bear hug that you would see with Glencore hasn't happened in this particular situation. And uh, the management team negotiated that before I joined the board and I think did an exceptional job. So you've got also major credibility, if you want to call it that, uh, some other large founding shareholders that are sizable positions. And it's it's a project that uh, – the trigger can be pulled on pretty quickly if you decide to go down that development pathway. And what we're focused on now is uh, is uh, we've recently consolidated around the main resource, the bulk of the resource, additional land, uh, where there's known porphyry copper gold mineralization. And so getting some great drill results on that. Uh, and then we'll be aiming to come out with a PEA uh, mid-year. And so that one in some ways a bit more advanced than uh, than Bravo, but a lot of the same ingredients for me with people, place, project quality, right commodity. Right. And so actually this this brings me to another question, actually going back to what we were talking about earlier at the beginning of the, the conversation, um, jurisdictional risk. You know, obviously Chile has been in the, the headlines the last couple of years. And, you know, me personally, there's a few things that happened that kind of made me take a step back. 
but I think you brought up a good point in terms of, you know, there's risk everywhere, you know, in, in North America has its own risk and South America has its own types of risk. So for you, is it, is, is the value proposition, what allows you to take on some of that jurisdictional risk, whether it's there or not in particular Chile, but just a general question is, is the valuation, which allows you to maybe take on more perceived risk? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, the, the, the deeper the undervaluation, the more risk that you're willing to take on. I think, Chile, I think there's a bit of a lack of understanding. Obviously, there was a huge amount of noise and a lot of concern by general market participants about what was going on in Chile. Uh, but I think what's happened politically is demonstrated that there is not support for obviously changing the constitution in the direction that, it was, that the, the government was pushing towards and also really uh, changing the fiscal structure uh, because I think a realisation that you need foreign investment to uh, to advance in both expansions and new mines, but also, I mean, Chile is the largest copper producer in the world. So it it really does, it it forms a key component of, of, of future copper su- supply. So I'd say that uh, political risk has materially decreased in Chile, uh, I think there's always tax risk. But interestingly enough, both in Chile and, and Bravo, to change mining taxes, it has to go through government. You can't just arbitrarily change. It has to be voted on at Congress. And in Australia, that's not the case. The Queensland government decided to whack on a maximum 40% royalty to all coal producers, uh, which is somewhat ironic given that uh, Australia still produces 55% of its electricity from coal. And so you cannot do that in Chile and in uh, Chile and in Brazil, for example. So I would say there's a little bit more checks and balances to arbitrarily running around changing taxes and royalties in the way that you see you've seen in countries like Australia. Right. Well, you know, the, another good example is in Canada. You know, the Canadian government uh put on with this, well, it was before net zero, but they they strapped on no coal production in Alberta past 2030, I think. And it was on the Jinsi coal mine and it cost Altius Minerals, I think it was $200 million or something like that crazy amount in future royalty revenues. And they've, they've gone to court over that. But it's another example of what you just brought up, like how this kind of hides from investors purview in terms of how they look at your, your different jurisdictions. But it's definitely there. Well, it's this weird thing that's going on right now with this move to net zero is we are voluntarily making our cost of living exceptionally expensive. And the people that's hurting the most, it's it's people who are working class or uh, who don't have a strong economic background to deal with the fact that their energy costs are skyrocket, skyrocketing. Maybe less so in Canada because a lot of Canadian power is hydro, but in other parts of the world where you've got a double tripling of your energy costs, and that's your that's your fundamental ability to live to live your life. And I think it's crazy what's going on now with this. And I think maybe you know, the average person is going to wake up and go, "This move to net zero, uh, when we're not necessarily thinking about it or executing it in the right way." Energy matters, and cheap energy matters. And so, if we're choosing to not have cheap energy, the knock-on effects of that are uh, they're material. Absolutely. You know, honestly, and that's for me personally, that's one of the negatives that I wonder if is kind of hiding out there is whether cost becomes one of those capping factors moving forward for commodities. Like to have a bullish thesis on on commodities, you, you know, it only goes so far because like you like where we, we were talking about before, you know, the high prices are the cure for high prices. And uh, you just, or at least I wonder what that looks like moving forward, because there's every reason um, to see metal prices higher in the future. But you wonder, you know, who's going to be able to spend the money or where that money is going to come from to 
to, to but, build the roads, build the whatever. Well, ironically, with the move to net zero and the increase in, in consumption of commodities like copper and like it just uh, like lithium, all of these energy transition metals, uh, the amount of metal required to even get there is is extreme. And so at some point, governments need to make a choice. And I think sometimes we're conflating uh, climate change with being environmentally aware with um, obviously you, you want to take an approach where you're impacting the environment the least amount that you can, but it also needs to be contextualised into the needs of of our society. And we in the West are obsessing about it and and sort of willing to, to uh, negatively impact our ability to perform in a global context. And you have China and India and other countries going, well, we don't care. And so <laughs> I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And I think how it will play out, it'll play out with voters. Uh, you know, because voters understand their energy bills. Voters understand the fact that costs of most of their imports have has been massive inflation. And when they start to connect the dots, so you have governments making these decisions that have these knock-on effects that are really negative and really, really hurt some segments of our population, I think that response is expressed in voting. Right. I guess the only problem is that it's reactive. You know, it has to go yeah. first, which is good and bad. <laughs> Well, that means that, again, circling back to, I, I, I mean, I say this quite a lot and everybody thinks I'm joking. I'm, I am, but I'm not. The way to get everybody to understand how important mining is, is every mining company in the world should just stop. Yeah. Just stop. <laughs> stop for a month. And everybody would understand very, very quickly. And then we wouldn't have to fight this ideological battle. And so, again, I think it's for the first time, though, we are seeing governments talk positively about mining. And we are seeing younger people because they understand understand that energy transition requires commodities. So what this, the talk about net zero energy transition has done to us is help us maybe message ourselves a little bit better, but we need to definitely be uh, still pounding that that point home. Right. One other question, um, in terms of resource estimates, I've heard it in two different kind of contexts. You know, you've got the Great Bear model where, you know, they really kept the market, especially those that are sort of ignorant to how these things are done or how to even calculate a mineral resource estimate, um, keep them in the dark and, and really worked in their favor, potentially, um, because the valuation went to enormous levels. Then you have other companies that are, it's a much more practical approach and we're going to do a resource estimate. Then we're going to do a PEA and then we're going to move up that scale towards production. Um, so my question is, is a resource estimate a limiting factor or, or is this, uh, is it only in the gold market where you can go without a resource estimate and still attract <laughs> attention? <laughs> oh, look, PhD thesis should be re- written on Great Bear. Uh, they <laughs> they did an unbelievably superb job of executing on the marketing side. Great discovery, obviously. Um, very, very hefty valuation. I think they probably realise, I mean, we've seen with Kinross's resource estimate that that resource estimate, if it had come out similar to that, it would probably be disappointed. Uh, they sold at the perfect time. I, I Hats off to them. They created enormous value for their shareholders. And I know speaking to some of the management team, that's a very stroppy shareholders saying you sold too early, but they did a superb job. Um, I, I would say releasing a resource estimate is almost always a negative. And that's because you, your resource estimate has to surprise on the upside. So it can be a deposit, a, a positive, uh, but it has to at the minimum meet expectations. And I think the Great Bear management team understood that expectations were so high that that would have been a harmful event for them. Unfortunately, I was a Kinross shareholder and I thought that Kinross had learned their lesson 
uh, after Tassius and acquiring Aurelian, turns out they hadn't. So, um, yes, I was. I woke up when that happened and went, oh, my God, I can't believe you guys did that. <laughs> <laughs> and it was crazy. I, I, I use it when I talk about reasons why share prices move because their share price uh, had tracked with no, basically no news, uh, was outperforming the GDXJ by 40% before the premium takeover. And that was because Barrick was acquiring ground contiguous with Great Bear. And so it had this takeover anticipation premium built into the share price. And then Kinross came and paid a premium on that. Uh, anyway, I it's, it wasn't great to be a Kinross shareholder that day. Let's just say that. Oh yeah. Well, there's, 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 you know, my experience, the, there's, there's numerous things that come up that are always a learning experience and it's constant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nicole, I know, I know. <laughs> Nikki, it, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you very much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.